as he was studying for a class that he was going to be teaching, Luther sits down and he was teaching on the epistle to the Romans by Paul. And Luther, depressed, unable to deal with the struggles in his life, began to read the passages that we have been talking about for the last couple months. And his eyes were enlightened to Romans 1, 17. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It is those words that ignited in the heart of a Catholic priest and theologian a heart for reformation within the church. My brothers and sisters, by the will of God and by the obedience of Martin Luther, we are here today saying we do not get to heaven by works. We do not get to heaven by the righteous things that we do. But just as Romans 1.17 says that a righteousness in the gospel has been revealed and it is a righteousness from God. And our job and our only obedience is to live by faith. I want to center our thoughts this morning on that idea. The righteous shall live by faith. Paul talks about this righteousness that is revealed in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Remember, he's just gotten done talking about that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. But in this verse 17, he says that in the gospel... A righteousness has been revealed. Before I get to what that righteousness being revealed is, we need to understand that it's revealed in the gospel. The Bible tells us first and foremost that before we can ever get to the righteousness of God, we need to understand our own position in life. That's one of the first things when we come to the communion table we should always remember. We should remember where we were before we came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In fact, in verses 18 of chapter 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, uh, let's see here, verse 24, Paul will begin to tell us how bad we as sinners are. In fact, that's where we're going to be getting to next week. Because we go, after all these weeks, talking about the good, the gospel, the calling of God, the love that God has shown us, He says next week that God is revealing His wrath. Now why would God reveal His wrath? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 for a moment. Why would God reveal His wrath to us in such a way? What have we done that God would do that to us? In verse 10, Paul highlights what the apostle, or I'm sorry, what the prophets had shared. Uh, some time ago. It says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. For we've all turned away, and we've become altogether worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Paul says that, declares that to us, and that's why in verse 18, he declares to us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. In the passages that we're going to be looking at, Paul's going to declare a couple things about us that we can never forget. And that's why we celebrate communion. Not just to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but to remember why Jesus Christ had to be dead, why he had to be buried, and why he had to rise from the grave. And that is is what Paul tells us in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way into chapter 3. He says that we have a disregard for God. Even though we knew God, we've disregarded God. It's not important to us. We have selective hearing as human beings, and we have forgotten that God is there. Well, we know God's there, and we said, You know what, God? Instead of following you and your righteous decrees, I'm going to go my own way. Next we see that there's a depraved appetite. We'll get to the ugly of Romans chapter 1, where it talks about we have fallen for every kind of sin and trespass and every kind of gross immorality that you can think of. Paul's going to talk about that we as, as uh, humanity have taken the natural and substituted it for the unnatural. The way that we were supposed to live, we said we don't want to live the normal way, so we'll take that and we'll live in abnormal ways. And we'll do things the way we want to. Finally, he says that because of that, there's a death sentence. Paul, what he's doing from verse 18 to chapter 3, like a good lawyer, he is staking a case against humanity about their sin. And like a good prosecuting attorney, he is saying, there is no one righteous. So who are you to think that you can have the righteousness of God on your own? There's none righteous. All of us have sinned, he says at the end of this, and fallen short of the glory of God. We need to remember, we are sinners with a death sentence because we are sinful. And if we forget that, then what Paul says in verse 17 means absolutely nothing to us. Paul in the book of Philippians, turn there for a moment, the book of Philippians articulates how he lived before he came to know Christ. If you're in the book of Romans, turn to your right, and you will go through Corinthians, you'll go through a book called Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul starts out in that chapter. In fact, the heading of the chapter in my NIV Bible speaks about no confidence in the flesh. Here Paul is writing to a a church, probably very similar to us, full of uh, a lot of struggles, but they were doing good things. They were joyful in the Lord. And Paul writes this wonderful epistle, this letter to the Philippi church, and he says, be joyful. But why should we be joyful? Well, Paul speaks about how he was joyful, why he was confident in the flesh before. Look at what he says at the end of verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh or the things that we have done in our bodies, Paul says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people... I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. You know, there's a lot of Paul pre-Christ in my own life. 
where I begin, just like Paul does, to start establishing why I'm righteous. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, was saved at a young age. I have followed in the ways of the Lord. I haven't fallen to too many gross sins. I've given my life to the preaching of the Word of God. I've given my life to to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at all that. I'm a part of a good church, a church that desires to do things for the glory of God. And we begin to start putting on our merit badges like Paul does and says, look how righteous I am. But you know what? If we stay there, then when the Bible says that in the gospel a righteousness has been revealed that's from God, Do you know what we'll do if we think like Paul did? Well, who needs it? Who needs this righteousness? That is why it's so important for us never to forget that we were blind, dead, and held captive by the evil one before we came to know Christ. And if we forget that, then that righteousness that God reveals in the gospel that was promised before uh, through the prophets, we would say, already got it. Don't need it. Maybe go over to my neighbor. He looks like he may need some righteousness. But look at what Paul says when the righteousness of God was revealed in his life in Philippians chapter 3. He says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider all those things that he said, everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. You know what Paul says when we get a proper reality of what is going on in our lives? Those things that Paul used to wear on his lapel that were so important to him, he says they became a liability to me. They became garbage to me. Who likes to carry around garbage here? Nobody does. Paul says it's garbage. It's nothing. I don't want to even carry them around. Because it does nothing for me. So what happens? Go back to Romans chapter 1. The gospel comes in. Here we who are spiritually depraved, going after our own desires, going after our own pride, and what happens? The gospel is revealed. And what is it revealing? It's revealing a righteousness from God. The word righteousness in the Greek literally means a straight edge or a ruler. This righteousness that is revealed in a world of chaos, in a world of trouble, God comes in with a straight edge and He begins to measure things up. You know, by if you look at some of the handiwork that I do around the house, you by uh, an untrained eye would say, it looks alright, yeah, it looks pretty straight. But if you get Dave Holtine or Rich Wood on the site and they start looking... What are they going to do? They're not going to look with their eye because their eye can deceive them. They pull out the ruler. They pull out a thing called the level. And they begin to look and say, you're way off. And they say, not only with your woodwork, but some parts of your life. And that's what God does with the gospel. He brings in the straight edge And what he does is we think we're all right because we're looking at ourselves through our own eyes which deceive us. And we look and say, yeah, I'm all right. Why? Well, because look at my neighbor. He's he's way off. Look, Look at her. She's off. But look at me. I'm just right. Until the gospel comes in that level, that straightness, and puts it up to our lives. And what does it say? Wow. 
You're crooked. You're off. Paul says there's a righteousness. Well, what is this righteousness? Uh, quickly, this word righteousness is uh, the word dikaisuni. Dukaisuni in the Greek, literally meaning straightness. And it involves three things commentators believe. First of all, this righteousness that was real is the attributes of God. If you're taking notes, I know I don't got any nice lovely spaces. Here's some alliteration for you. The attributes of God. What this means is God is righteous. The reason why we worship God this morning is because He is a righteous God. He is a straight God. There's no imperfections in Him. James chapter 1 verse 17 says that he is, uh, has all this, uh, wonderful things coming down to us who is the father of lights where there's no shifting of shadows. He is rock solid. He is righteous. And that is based on his holiness and that's based on his justice and his love. All of his ways, all of his attributes are perfect. That's why we worship him. Because we are not perfect, yet he is. So there's the attribute. Secondly, it is seen as an activity. As an activity, this idea here is that not only is God righteous, but He is also the giver of righteousness. Now understand this, there is nowhere we can go, it's not Walmart, it's not Target, it's not the jewel down the street or the Aldi if you want it half price. You cannot go anywhere and get righteousness. Because the Bible says there is none that are righteous. So where do we go for this righteousness? God is the only giver of righteousness because He is righteous. And I can't give you something that I don't have. God is righteous, and He's the giver of it. So it's an attribute, it's an activity. Finally, it's an achievement. The righteousness that is being revealed from God speaks of His attributes, it speaks of His activity of being the giver, but it also speaks about what He has done. What He's done. Because what He does in our lives, we who are unrighteous, God who is righteous, He doesn't sit there and say, Oh, too bad, so sad, you who are unrighteous. He says, I can achieve righteousness for you. I can give you my righteousness. Not, not some righteousness. Not to make you a little better. But I'll give you my son's righteousness. Turn back in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Real quick, Philippians chapter 3. And I want you to see how Paul answers this issue of righteousness on his own. Paul says, after he has said, he considers everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I... Uh, may uh, gain Christ. Now look at what he says. And not being found, or and being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from following the law and doing righteous things, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He says this righteousness comes from God and is by faith. Paul says my only chance of being righteous is not trying to do the righteous things of the law, all the things that we see, do not kill, do not steal, honor your mother and father, do not cheat. He says, I can't do it there. In fact, the Bible says that the law was only there to prove our inability to be righteous. So that's why we have all those laws in there. 
from those, uh, those obscure books of uh, uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And we read those and say, why all these laws do this and make sure you don't do that? And if you're going to do this, follow these steps. Why? Because God is just continuing to tell us you can't make it on your own. Don't try. Don't try to do it on your own because righteousness does not come from the law. So what does it lead to? There's, three, there's a threefold outpouring of this righteousness. This righteousness that is revealed by God does three things. Number one, write this in your outlines. This righteousness is the standard by which sinners will be judged. When we get to heaven, the question is going to be on the table, and that question will be quite simply, brothers and sisters, are you righteous or are you not? Because that is by which God is going to judge us. He's going to look and he's either going to see the righteousness of Christ that was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ applied to my life and yours, or he'll see you unrighteous, dead in your sins. This righteousness that is being revealed is the righteousness by God says, all right, like a good umpire in the game of baseball or the referee in the game of uh, football, he says, here are the ground rules. They that are righteous will enter my spiritual home called heaven. Those who are unrighteous will live in an eternity in a place called hell. And he says, this is the standard by which I will judge. Secondly, by this righteousness, this is what approves us. This is what approves us. This is what gives us a stamp that says, approved unto God. This righteousness is the only thing that will get us into heaven. There's nothing, there's no part of you, this sermon, I can't use this sermon on the judgment day and say, I used the Bible and I did the best of my ability, God. That should account for something. God says, no. Because it's not about the righteous things I've done. The book of Isaiah says that even our righteous deeds are but filthy rags before a holy God. So it is the righteousness that is revealed that not only sends the unbeliever to hell, but it is the righteousness that is applied to our lives that allows us the bliss of heaven. The final thing that we see in this righteousness is that this is the righteousness that is provided by God to sinners. He says that this righteousness from God has been revealed in the gospel. What is the gospel? If you learn anything in our time of Romans, learn this. The gospel is, we are bad, very, very bad. There's not even a good word for bad, because that's how bad we are. Okay, find the worst bad you can find, and then add ten degrees to that, and then a million degrees after that. We're that bad. In our sinfulness, God didn't leave us there. But God, even though He's holy, even though He's just, even though there is no sin to be found in Him, He comes and at the cross, the great exchange, the cross of Jesus Christ, He applies the Son's righteousness unto ours. That's the Gospel. Look at what it says back in Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. What it says is, is this gospel was promised by the prophets. And then it centers itself on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel has nothing to do with you and I. It has all to do with Christ. And what Christ has done, because He takes that which is unrighteous, and He takes that which is righteous, and He bridges the gap. 
And He brings it to the cross of Calvary. And He redeems us who are lost and in need of a Savior. Next we see, we've got to ask the question, well, how do we get there? How do we get there? The answer is in the next part of the verse. It says that this righteousness in verse 17 from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. A righteousness that is by faith. How, how bad would it be had God said, All right, I'm going to write the book of Romans without the gospel in it. And all we have to read is verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're worse, that's ugly, that's really gross, that's sick. Shame on you, shame on you, shame on you. And he doesn't say anything else. We would have nothing to have hope for. But what Jesus, or I'm sorry, what Paul says to us is that Jesus gives us hope. And that conduit, that channel by which we receive the righteousness of God, isn't in some mystery. It isn't in a list of to-dos and don'ts. He uses the word it is found in faith. This word faith is the Greek word pistis. And it involves four elements. I, I love uh, a scholar by the name of Weiss. When you want to find out what a word means, ask him. He's got it in his book where he defines many of the difficult words of Scripture. And he gives four elements to what this faith is. What, what kind of faith? is it that brings us this righteousness? Number one, this word pistis literally means considering Jesus Christ trustworthy in His character and His motives. What that means in our English today is what that is saying is, is have faith that Jesus is who He says He is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father. No one can be righteous enough except through me. If I want to be righteous, if I want the righteousness of God, I've got to believe that what Jesus says is true. The Bible tells me that Jesus lived a life of perfection because He was the Son of God. The righteous has to believe that to be true. The unrighteous will say, forget it. I have to believe that Jesus Christ uh, was going to accomplish what He said He was going to accomplish. That's the second element of faith. We see that it's placing confidence in Jesus' ability to do what He says He will do. Jesus says, you're sinful. Jesus says, I can fix it. Jesus says, I'm going to fix it by going to the cross and laying down my life for the sheep. I have to believe that. Pistis, faith, means I'm going to believe that to be true. That without the cross of Calvary that I believe and I place my confidence that Jesus is correct, that without that cross I will die in my sin. Next, this word means entrusting one's soul for the salvation into the hands of Jesus. We don't just believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We don't just believe that He could accomplish what He said He did. But we apply it to our lives by saying, that's the ticket. That's it. The cross of Calvary is the only way that I can receive the grace that I need that comes from heaven. So I place my confidence in it. There's nothing else I can do. Not the righteous deeds that I've tried to perform. Nothing will get me there except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Finally, it is the act of committing oneself to the care and the command of the Lord. Why is that so important? 
Because that's the natural outpouring of this faith. We sit there and say, yes, I entrust my salvation to you, but if I entrust my salvation to you at that moment where we are justified, where we are reckoned as righteous in a theological sense, that I have to trust that it's not just a one-time event, but it will continue to go until I meet Almighty God. Paul was confident. He says, being confident of this, he who began justified me, began a good work in me, made me righteous, is faithful to see that righteousness all the way to the day of completion. So our faith isn't just in the moment. I've taught you this before. It's not just in that moment where we pray that prayer. But the faith is is that God is going to continue to see me righteous from that moment of dedication all the way to the day that I stand before Almighty God. What is that? What is that? How does that come about this morning? William Barclay, a great scholar of the Scriptures, gives uh, three ways that uh, faith comes about. First of all, it's receptivity to the Word of God. What William Barclay says is the only way we can receive uh, by faith the righteousness that comes from God is that we're receptive to the Word of God. And what happens is, is one day, I don't know how, I don't know when, but one day you were sitting and you were dead in your trespasses and sin and someone read a scripture or there was a song on the radio that spoke of Christ or someone shared a testimony and all of a sudden the light came on, I am a sinner in need of grace. I remember that. I was a young boy in Sunday school class and, and this girl was talking about a relationship with Jesus. And I remember a light going on saying, well, I, I want that. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to try to live on my own. So I went and started talking with my dad. I don't know why that came about on that given Sunday in that Sunday school class. I have no idea why. The Bible says in John chapter 3, we don't know how the Spirit moves, but it does. And most, if all of you, if not all of you, know at the moment that the light came on and it came to the receptivity of the Word of God. The next thing it involved was a mental assent, which means that you not only heard the Word of God or heard the Gospel, but you said, I believe it to be true. I believe it to be true. Jesus died on the cross? Yes, I believe that to be true. But many times we think that that's all saving faith is about, this faith that brings forth righteousness. But that's not. Because the Bible says in the book of James that the demons believe that there is one God and they shudder. What does that tell us? That tells us that they have a receptivity to the Word of God. Why? Because they know what the Word of God has said and they know it to be true. The demon knows it to be true far more than you and I know it to be true. Because they see Christ and they see God in His righteousness and they say, yeah, He's the boss. I don't want to be his employee and I'm going to fight it, but he's the boss. Look at every encounter that a demon has with Jesus. There's no question about who's in charge. But are the demons saved? No. Because a receptivity to the word and mental assent don't make it. And Barclay says that we see in the scripture that it involves total surrender. We listen to the Word of God. We believe the Word of God and the Gospel to be true. And we get on our knees and we say, not my will, but your will be done. Not by my way of living, 
but because of Christ I am saved. God, I can't do it on my own. Only by your grace and your mercy can I do it. So I release all ownership to you, not to me. And it's total surrender. Well, what does that lead to then? What does it lead to? Paul says that it is a faith that is from first to last in the NIV. The NAS says it is faith from faith. Literally in the Greek mean out of faith and into faith. I struggle a little bit with where the NIV is at. I think they missed uh, where they were wanting to go with this because there's a better translation. It's not faith from first to last, but it is faith out of some kind of faith that becomes another kind of faith. Literally is what that's saying there. So what does that mean for us today? There are four explanations at what Paul is meaning by from faith, uh, faith from first to last or from faith to faith. The first explanation is, is that scholars give is this is a faith that comes from the Old Testament that leads into the New Testament. The faith of the prophets, incomplete as it was, was a beginning stage of what the completed gospel would be all about. They believed in a Messiah, that a coming Messiah would come and take away the sins of the world. But they didn't know who it was. So it was an incomplete faith to a complete faith from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The next one is, is that it is a faith from the proclaimer to the hearer. What that means is when you testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the faith that you proclaim goes from you to the hearer. From faith to faith. The third explanation is, is that it's God's faith that is translated into man's faith. That God is the origin of faith and that it goes from him to man. Of the commentaries that I spend most of my time studying, number four is the most probable one. And what they say it is, is that it is an infant faith that grows into a mature faith. What it's saying is, is that this idea, their, their understanding of this text, is that it is a baby faith that grows into an adult faith. So this righteousness that comes from God is by faith that grows from a baby faith to a mature faith. So what are we to do with that this morning? The answer is found in verse 5. Turn in verse 5 of chapter 1. Because we are to proclaim to the world about an obedience that comes from faith. And what that means is, is if I'm going to give my life over to Jesus Christ, then what that means is, is I don't just do it in the moment. I don't just do it here at church. But I surrender my life and it begins to breed obedience. It breeds obedience. What Paul is saying is that a saving faith is a faith that obeys. A saving faith involves all facets of life. A saving faith begins in the heart but gets to the brain and gets to the body through our actions that we do. Saving faith is a faith that is lived out each and every day. So what does Paul do? He says, I want to explain this to you. So he goes back to a prophet. A prophet, depending on where you live in America, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, Whatever you want to call him, good old Hab. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says that the righteous will live by faith. Why does he say that? 
Because if we want to reveal to the world the righteousness that is being revealed from God, then we've got a job to do. And our job is to live by faith. Well, how do we do that? I want to use this as a form of review of chapter 1. How do we live by faith, Village Bible Church? Look at verse 1. We are to live as servants who are called to our ministry and set apart. We're different than the world because we live by faith. Number, uh, uh, verse number 2. We are to trust in the gospel that was promised to us through the prophets. Verse 2 through 5, we are to trust in Christ and the perfect life that He lived and the death, burial, and resurrection. And by the power of Almighty God was resurrected from the dead. In verse 5, we need to live in light of all that Christ has done for us. The grace He's given. The calling that He's given us. And the obedience that He's called for us to live in. In verse 8, we are to be thankful. In verse 9, we are to serve God wholeheartedly. In verse 10, we are to be prayerful. In verse 11, we are to love our brothers and sisters. In verse 12, we are to edify one another. In verse 13, we are to follow the will of God. In verse 14, we cannot be selective with the gospel, but to Greeks and non-Greeks alike, to the wise and to the foolish, we are to proclaim the goodness of Christ. In verse 15, we are to be eager to minister and continue to share in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 16, we are to be not ashamed of the gospel. How do we live by faith? I don't know, there's like 16 ways just in one half of one chapter of the book of Romans. And there's so many other ways. We're to live by faith. And the wonderful and the great thing is, is as we learn about this righteousness that has been revealed by God, and we know that we're sinful, and we know that Christ can come and bridge that gap by the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, when we realize that, we become righteous. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed on our lives. It doesn't cover up our sin. Please hear me. It doesn't like, a, if you will, a spiritual deodorant... Deodorant doesn't get rid of smell, if you don't know that or not. It covers it up. It covers it up. The old way of sacrifices, if you will, I always call the spiritual deodorant for the Israelites. It covered up the stench of sin. But the righteousness that is imputed to us, my friends, it is as if we've never sinned. Because what happens is, is Christ takes His righteousness and applies it to our life that when God sees us on the great judgment day. He sees us as just as righteous as His Son. I don't know if that means anything to you. That means a whole lot to me. So in light of that righteousness, Paul says, now live by faith. Live by faith. Why? What happens as we live by faith? What happens when we are righteous? Look at verses 6 and 7. Just as a way of review. Because of this righteousness, we belong to God. Because of this righteousness, it says that we belong to Jesus Christ. That should assure many of us who struggle with the assurance of faith. Not because of the righteousness that we've done. Now listen, it's not because of what we've done before we came to Christ that we are saved. But listen as well. It is not because of the righteous things that you do after you're saved that keep you saved. The same grace that met you based on nothing of your own merit is the same grace that will keep you saved not on the merits that you've done as well. It's that same grace. Why? Because we belong to God. And Jesus says anyone who is in the hand of God, who belongs to God, no one can pluck them out of my hand. 
The second thing we see is we're beloved by God. You need to understand this morning, if you are not loved by anybody else, you are loved by Almighty God. He loves you. While we were still sinners, He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on our behalf because He loved us. And if you have no one else in this world that loves you, know and understand that God loves you. And that God loves you with a love that no man, no woman, no, woman, no child would ever give you. It's the love of Almighty God. We learned this a couple weeks ago. We become saints. We aren't just halfway righteous. We are completely righteous. We are set apart. We are the set apart people of God. We are His children. And we are a part of His family. He sets us apart and doesn't say, I just kind of cover up your righteousness a little bit. And then you're on your own. Good luck. He says, no. You're righteous. And those who are righteous are with me. And finally, we... Are, are, are showered with blessings. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We're showered with blessings. So how does this work within the communion table this morning? I hope that you realize what I realized this last week. That if we forget about how bad we are, if we forget about how sinful we are before we came to know Christ, that we will miss out on the righteousness. And, and this, this commemoration means absolutely nothing to us because we did it on our own. But if we know that we are sinful and in need of a Savior and we've trusted Christ, why? Not just for our fire insurance, but that we can have the righteousness of Christ, then we commemorate this with a great joy in our heart because without this, we are nothing except those that are lost in our sin and on the way to hell. So why do we remember this? We don't do this just to remember a historical date at a place called Calvary. We remember this because this is the gospel. This communion is, is the gospel. It commemorates that we were lost in our sins, dead in our trespasses, but God, because of His amazing love, shed His blood on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God. So why does Paul then say that we are to do this? Well, he gives us the pattern by which we're to do it. We're to first examine ourselves. Why examine ourselves? Are we living by faith? Not examine ourselves whether to see we're righteous or not. That's based on Christ. But are we living by faith? Are we living by faith in the way we treat one another? Are we living by faith in the way we treat our God? Are we living by faith in the way that we treat what the Son of God has done for us? So he says, examine ourselves, which I'll give you a moment to do here in a second. But then we are to continue to do it. Why? Because we who are the righteousness of God are not to be ashamed. And what we do, please remember this, every time you take this cup and you eat this bread, what you're doing is proclaiming. What does it mean to proclaim? It means you are not ashamed. What are you not ashamed of? That Jesus Christ is the Lord. And you're not ashamed to say, I was a loser in the sight of God. I was a sinner in the sight of God, but based on His grace and mercy, by the blood of Jesus Christ, that which this commemorates, I was saved. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. And when we commemorate this, we commemorate that we are not ashamed because we proclaim it. The final thing that we see within this communion is that we proclaim it until He comes. This righteousness hasn't been fully revealed to us yet. 
It's revealed in the gospel, but the gospel says that one day in white robes, in the holiness of all that he is, Jesus Christ will come and he will take his people to be with him. And at that point, at that point of judging, we will be given new bodies and we will be glorified, but we will be like him. And then and only then we will see the righteousness of Almighty God. So what does this communion do? It tells us, it reminds us we're not home yet. It reminds us we haven't seen our righteousness completely fulfilled yet. That one day that righteousness will clothe us in a way that we have never seen in our lives. And that's what we remember this morning. That we are sinners. That Christ was able to come to save us and to bring us the righteousness that is revealed in the gospel. I'm going to ask the servers to come this morning. I'm going to ask uh, the ladies that we're going, going to be playing to come forward as well. And I want you just to take a couple moments before we even start serving, before we go even a step further, and I want us to spend some time just meditating on what the Lord has revealed to us today. His righteousness. And I want you to say, Lord, if you've never come to a relationship with Christ, that today you would say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I'm in need of grace. Save me. Allow that righteousness to be applied to my life so that I can now live by faith. But if you're, if you're saved already, you would pray that you would live by faith. That you would live by faith and you would begin to examine your hearts, all aspects of your life, not just in your profession, but in the life that you practice. Are you living by faith? Because the Bible says, if we have the righteousness of Christ, then just as Martin Luther learned, the righteous live by faith. Let's spend a moment in silence and just go before our God, giving Him the glory for His righteousness and the payment of sin. Father God, as we come to this table, let us not forget the price that was paid. Let us not forget that you didn't have to come and save us. That you were holy in and of yourself. You were righteous. And that it was all for us. That you came and you died. And you shed your blood that we might have the righteousness from you. So Lord, I pray that as we take this, we would not take this in an unworthy way. That we would remember we are sinners who have been applied the righteousness of God. And that that would warm our hearts, that that would enlighten the way we ought to live, enlighten the way we ought to treat one another, and that it would change us so that we would live by faith and become more like you. Father, let us forgive those who have sinned against us. Let us ask for forgiveness when we've sinned against you. Let us be a people of God who not only proclaim with our mouths, but proclaim with our lives 
that we do believe what you say you have done and believe you to be our only remedy and the only God in heaven who can save us. To you be the glory as we partake together in Jesus' name. It's the men to come forward. He said, this is my body. This body that was completely righteous. This body that was completely perfect. This body that had no blemish, 
or nothing that was unwanted by God. And he said, this is my body. This is the righteousness that was, that was within that body. The righteousness that, that comes. Because he was the righteous lamb that could allow the righteousness of God to be applied to us. He said, take it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Jesus Christ could have lived a thousand lives as the perfect man, the perfect Adam. And had he not shed the blood on the cross of Calvary, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sin. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup as well. And he said, this is the cup symbolizes the blood that was shed. And he told us as often as we eat this bread, we are to drink and remember the blood that was shed that would allow us to have the righteousness of God. And he said, as often as you eat this bread, we drink of this cup to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you came and died. We thank you that you have given us the righteousness that comes from God. Because without it, Father, we, we're dead. And we're on our way to hell. But because of your grace and your mercy, Lord, we are heirs with Christ. We are part of your family. And we no longer have to worry about the sin that will condemn us because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we want to remember, we never want to stop forgetting until we see you on that great and glorious day when you come. We never want to forget what you have done. So bring that to our minds. Bring that into remembrance. And that that remembrance would change the way we live until that day comes where we stand before you face to face. We love you. And we proclaim your name without a shame being ashamed of that gospel and let us go from this place proclaiming your death and burial and resurrection until you come in Jesus name all God's people said amen Chuck